Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and the long breaks we're taking. I'm Joe Simpson. And I'm Dave Ramsey. How's it going, Dave? Doing pretty good, Joe. How you doing? Pretty good. I want to apologize at the top of the show. Uh, Dave and I are having some weird audio issues and we were not able to figure them out. So instead of doing our normal cobbled together recording setup. We're just using Zoom to record the call. So there won't be separate tracks for each of us and editing will be very minimal for the show. So if you're an audiophile and you're really picky about that stuff, I don't know why you're listening to our show in the first place, but uh, <laughs> this may be lower audio quality than even usual, which is you know, saying a lot for my crappy editing skills. Anyway, now that that's out of the way, we're gonna talk about software development. So before we go into Dave's update, I just wanted to reiterate the thanks to Charles for being on the last episode. Uh, it was a fascinating conversation. I, had, I got to listen back to it during the edit and I still don't understand how all of that stuff works. <laughs> then I, I listened to it again over the break and like, he's just a really smart guy. And like just, he's got that, level of technical expertise that comes with working on like one product or system for a really long time. Kind of like you do with FM Perception where you can just really become an expert at your tech stack in a way that I rarely get to do because I work on so many different things. So fun conversation. Hopefully we can have him back someday. And um, depending on where the show goes this year, we may have some other guests uh, from the FileMaker community or web communities, and maybe even as I get more into WebXR, maybe get someone on from the you know A-Frame or Babylon JS community to talk about stuff. Sounds like a plan. Yep. So, Dave, what have you been working on? Well, um, we're working on a new project um, that is currently tentatively named FM Perception Next. Hmm. Um, I, I have caveats at, at the beginning. Okay. This is not an announcement of a product. Okay. We have no solid spec. So any feature we may discuss may never see the light of day up to and including the entire project in its current form. Mm -hmm. um, we have no timeline. In the end, it may take between three months and I, I don't know, maybe three years to get something that we want anybody to look at and play with and work with. Yeah. I don't think it will necessarily take that long, but who knows? Because every week or so we bump into an issue that makes me seriously consider back burnering the whole thing until another few FileMaker versions have come out. Hmm. And technology in general has moved forward a little bit. Um, it's, yeah, this is, this is very, very R&D, not development we wouldn't put it on the back burner we would put it we would freeze it cry, cryogenically so that the <laughs> technology can have a chance to catch up to the idea <laughs> freezing applications cryogenically love it mm -hmm. um and to a certain degree the only reason that we've started it at this point is i blame joe um joe's a phenomenal resource and I love working with you and having you on retainer is great, but I need to keep you busy. Yeah. I mean, and, you don't have to, but I do pester you constantly when you don't. 
Well, if I'm going to spend the money every month, mm-hmm. I, I, I want to get something for it. And if I get too comfortable with paying you to do nothing, two years could pass. <laughs> <laughs> and just lots and lots of money out the door for which I received nothing but friendship, which I mean is valuable, but I don't normally have to pay for that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so in an interest of keeping Joe busy, I started poking at some of this stuff and having a heck of a lot of fun. Like I love the beginning stages of a project. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, we've talked about that before. And I think we've also touched on the fact that I hate the beginning stages of a project. <laughs> <laughs> so Dave is having a really good time and I'm over here like twiddling my thumbs, staring at the last 10 items on my to-do list from that comparison and just having like an OCD induced panic attack. Like I really want to finish another project. I, and I do too, but part of that is an idea popped into my head along the way after so much delay. I just was just like, I'm not releasing the full version of FM comparison in 2020. It just can't happen. It, it has to be a 2021 product. Yeah. There's no way a 2020 app release will go well. Yeah. And there's only a couple of features left to do from our original list of features. And really there's just two things that we're waiting on Dave from the back end, from like serializing some data for the user preferences and some layout objects. And I have, I don't know if threatened is the right word, but I have sternly offered to learn the C-sharp backend well enough to finish those features at some point if Dave doesn't do it. Um, I'm going to do it. Yeah. It just needs to be peer pressured. There's one of them in particular. We, we talked about the feature, we got it all kind of worked out and then we started working on it and we found some edge cases that we needed to account for. And then we had a call about what needed to happen next. And I don't think either of us remember what needs to happen next with that. I think we need to just go back and like have that call with the same inputs and hope that we (laughs) arrive at the same conclusion. It's it's entirely possible. I do have some notes from that, but I'm going to have to decode them. Yeah. Yeah. So on the side of FM perception next, I've been playing with graph databases. Of course. Of course. Um, As... Mike Burgey recently commented, apparently I select projects so that I can uh, explore new technologies, not explicitly for the purposes of releasing the product. He's not wrong. <laughs> there, there are definitely aspects of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I spent a couple of weeks digging through different solutions or different technologies for graph databases trying to find the right one. And I needed a very particular mix of technologies and capabilities that just made whole swaths of what's available not an option for this thing. Because I need .NET, but I also need cross-platform, mm-hmm. which knocks out 30, 40% of the .NET technologies for doing graph databases. I needed something fast and scalable. So I can't take somebody's cool little graph database project that they built to handle their own stuff of 10,000 nodes and 
you know, it works great for their needs, but it just doesn't have it. I needed something that could handle big. Um, it needs to be local. So I didn't want to have a server component. I didn't want to require people to set up a server or to talk to my server or anything like that. It had to be local and it had to be embeddable. There couldn't be a secondary install to build something in on your own machine to do this. And I didn't want to litter people's computers with files. Mm -hmm. So I needed in memory. And that, that's also a performance thing. If we can keep it in RAM, great. The model for FM perception has always been trade RAM for performance. And I think most of the users agree that's a decent swap. Mm -hmm. um, and as part of making FM perception next better than FM perception, I wanted something that was easily exportable and importable so we could get a save file format. So we can you know, do this analysis and then dump these things out. It's always been one of the things that confuses and or bothers FM perception users is that there's no way to save your work. Yeah. Um, and then optimally, I'd really like a query language. Something that allows text input of questions and getting back responses. A, that allows me to pass some of the um, some of the load for building the logic that populates the screens off to Joe and or possibly to users. But also it means that once I have a query language, I'm going to try and do everything in the query language. So I'm not writing custom code for every single report, which mm. eventually is what made FM perception difficult to work with, is that every single list that you bring up has hundreds of lines of custom code that populated the thing and populated the columns and built the sidebar and all of that's custom every single time. And trying to reduce that dependency. So give it a common backend that all the queries hit and then give it a query language so there's a common way of communicating what we want the answers to yeah and i remember i think that'll really streamline things there's an anecdote from a couple of years ago i think 2017 ish there was a single source file i think it might have had something to do with layout objects and fm perception but there was a, a, i was complaining about my bloated code kind of redundant code in random arrow. And Dave showed me this single source file for this one feature. And that source file had more lines of code than my entire game did. <laughs> like, oh, okay. So I don't know what I'm talking about. Just repeating myself a couple times isn't that bad. <laughs> don't repeat yourself, except when you just kind of need to. Yeah. So um, I'm currently using a library called .NET RDF, which is Microsoft's kind of built-in .NET library for handling a graph format called a resource description framework or RDF. And RDF is entirely composed of triples. So it's a subject, a predicate, and an object. This particular field has a name of 
my field name. Mm-hmm. That's that's the three kind of columns to this thing. And what's crazy when you start digging into this is you can build arbitrarily complex database structures, what we would think of as a relational structure, from what is effectively a single table with only three fields. Hmm. That's it. And you can build anything out of it. That's crazy pants. But yeah, so I got a bunch of the parsing working. It's by no means done. Um, I actually haven't told Joe, one of the one of the properties that's shoved into this thing for each particular element type is how completely the parser is written. Hmm. So it's like, a I can't remember the name of the predicate, but it's like parsing completion or something like that. And so when you pull back a list of tables, one of the columns that can come back with that is a thing that goes, you know, 90% or partial or mostly complete, that kind of thing. So in code, we'd actually be able to reflect in a dev UI exactly how complete and or reliable the data is that we're getting back, which I just, it it tickles my funny bone. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, that's the big thing. Um, my current fun is in pounding my head against memory leaks. Um, we're having a problem where, uh, if you load a bunch of DDRs or a bunch of chunks of XML in successive windows, none of that Ram is getting released when the window closes. And that's, gosh, that's a pain. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm running into memory management system fatigue between Objective-C, Swift, C-sharp, the weird variants on Xamarin, stuff like that. I'm not going to get into all of that this week. Probably save that for next episode, hopefully, because then it will be less about me just sitting here expressing my frustration about how obnoxious this is (laughs) and more about, hey, look at these cool solutions I found to this weird and obnoxious problem. So yeah, that's that's what I'm poking with. That's at least part of what you're messing with. Mm-hmm. Um, what what are you doing, Joe? Yeah, so some of this some of the time has been spent on, I guess, two projects. One was a a mockups project for FM Perception Next, where I just threw together a view project and was testing some ideas and kind of treating. I don't want to go into all the design details because nothing's really set in stone yet, but kind of treating Dave's backend as a black box and just basically going on to the assumption that all I have access to is a query and a response, which makes, you know, makes a lot of sense for a front end <laughs> developer, but I can, I can request data and then get data back. And the data I get back is relatively structured but is kind of arbitrary in terms of what columns I'm getting back mm-hmm. or what properties I'm getting back for which type of element and then building a user interface around that kind of adaptability and then talking to Dave recently but also over the years about things that FM perception users want FM perception to do that it doesn't do and then trying to incorporate that stuff so really frequent stuff like 
reordering columns and having that reorder state persist between multiple sessions. Um, you know, customizing the list of columns for a particular layout and saying, you know, hide all these ones. I don't, I never care about these and put these ones in this order and then sort by this one by default, things like that. And mm. th just things that would be really nice for, you know, particularly developers, think of the consultant developers who are using FM perception on tons of different databases and they want to just set up a project to work a certain way and don't want, don't want to have to constantly tweak FM perception for each one of those projects as they move from workflow to workflow. So I've got some pretty interesting stuff built for that. We're using AG Grid as our, our table and it has a bunch of APIs for persisting that type of data. And right now I'm kind of session persisting it um, in the Vuex store, but not, it hasn't actually made it to the back end yet to save any of that stuff yet, but came up with an interesting set of compromises and, and a way to, of saving that based on like every UI element having a unique ID or a unique key to identify it. And then just saving all of that stuff in the store as a giant object and then getting it back out as an object. So kind of a, you know, the JavaScript equivalent of a dictionary. And uh, it's pretty neat so far. It's got some limitations, but it works. And uh, yeah, there's a lot, a lot more to figure out there. But Dave and I have joked several times that the, the UI for this project is going to be data. Like there's the UI for FM comparison is largely markup with some JavaScript functions supporting the functionality to do custom stuff where if, it, it, if we're able to pull off what I think we're going to do with FM perception next, the, the code part of the front end will be relatively minimal and we'll just be feeding in data to view components and the components will essentially be building themselves based on that data. And it's pretty neat. Um, yeah, most of your code's gonna be in organizing that information and then persisting that organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, which is way easier to do if you treat it as a design concept from the beginning <laughs> yeah. than to shoehorn it in later. Yeah, it's, it's pretty neat stuff. So the other stuff I've been working on is my I guess we didn't get a chance to talk about what the project is in detail, but I'm referring to it as uh, my WebXR chambers. And the, the three terms I came up with, chambers, relics, and cabinets, I started using these terms so that I can differentiate between scenes in Babylon.js or A-frame and entities in those frameworks and menus. So I'm using a, a separate set of terms, a chamber, is equivalent to a scene, but not really. It's an environment that is customized. A relic is an object in that environment that links to some piece of data from the data store. And a cabinet is a storage device for relics that haven't been added to a chamber yet, which is basically a glorified menu system. So I open a cabinet and query the data sources and pull things out of them and turn them into relics. Um, 
but this this entire thing is basically my my kind of WebXR pet project of working with data in 3D um, in a spatial environment and kind of using kind of neuroplasticity and you know spatial awareness to remember and work with data. And then each of these chambers is representative of something. So a chamber could be for a project or it could be for a specific period of time. Like the, the ones I'm working on now are just weekly chambers where I've got a, a weekly document that I do as part of my weekly review where I set up everything I'm trying to work on that week and then link it to a bunch of tasks and related resources. And then that same document gets closed out at the end of the week when I do my weekly review. Um, so I'm basically making a, a 3D scene equivalent of that document and then linking that to data. So I've been working on this for a while and just trying to find the right technology to use. And I mentioned last fall that I had started to work with Babylon JS and it has some really neat stuff. Babylon JS is a full-blown game engine. It can do a lot, but one thing it can't do very well is render text. They've got some basic GUI stuff for working with text. And as soon as I started using much of it at all, performance started tanking. And I did a quick test of like using a relatively basic 3D GUI system with a single object with a title and a subtitle text on it. And then I made 20 instances of that in a scene. And the VR scenes need to get at least 72 frames a second, ideally 90 frames a second. When I had those 20 text objects in a scene, I was getting five frames a second, which is completely inviable. And I started looking for answers and it, it basically came down to none of this has really been optimized for this, for XR. It's this whole, most of the tech stuff in Babylon JS is really meant to be used as an overlay in the browser. Um, because keep in mind, Babylon JS is not specifically a VR or XR thing. It has some XR features, but it's really a browser-based 3D engine and game engine. And most of these text tools are made to be used as an overlay, like a menu system that's showing on top of your scene when you're not actually interacting with the 3D scene. And I'm trying to put all that stuff into world space. And the way that WebGL renders this text is really quite bad. So I went back to A-Frame, did a quick test there with the same types of objects, like created a, a box and added two text elements to it and added 20 instances of a, a scene and performance was fine. So I said, well, I, I will keep working in A-Frame then. Um, so I was, was kind of brushing up on A-Frame and somebody on Twitter shared a link to a book I'll stick in the show notes. But it was an interesting book that was approaching WebXR development with A-Frame, but starting all the way back at WebGL. Like here is what WebGL is. Here's how to do the very most basic things of like just drawing a square in an HTML canvas with WebGL and then turning that square into a cube and applying matrix operations to add perspective, you know, creating your own 3D camera, stuff like that. Um, this book wasn't trying to teach me how to be a WebGL developer, but just to give me the context of like, A-Frame is built on 3JS, 3JS is built on WebGL, WebGL is based on OpenGL, here's how all of this stuff works. So 
as I'm working in A-frame, if I need to drop down to 3JS, I kind of have a sense of what I'm doing. And if I'm working in 3JS and I see somebody writing, you know, custom shaders for a specific thing, I, I can at least identify what that is now, as opposed to just, well, I have no idea what that is. Doesn't look like anything to me. Um, so I decided to essentially for my project, go back to A-frame to work on this stuff and any kind of more interactive stuff I may still do in Babylon.js. Like Dave and I have been joking around about doing a little golf game. And we mostly joke about that while we're playing other VR golf games and complaining about them. Um, <laughs> but if we did that kind of project, I would probably still want to do that in Babylon.js. But in terms of my WebXR chambers, I'm going to stick with A-frame. And I made all this, these decisions, you know, early December. And then Dave and I decided to take the month off from the podcast. And I was like, I'm going to have so much of this done by the time the next podcast gets done. And you know what? I didn't touch it for like three weeks. <laughs> I just kind of did some work on Dave's project, did some work on my consulting stuff. Um, and then just took it easy over the, the holidays and really didn't get back into it until this past weekend. And I started working with A-Frame and just building some basic elements and working on user input. So working with the hand controllers and interacting with objects in the scene, which sounds pretty basic. And in Babylon.js, it is pretty basic. In A-Frame, it's a bit more complicated because A-Frame itself doesn't provide any of that stuff. So I had to find an input system. And the one I settled on is called Superhands and a physics system. And the one I'm using is called A-Frame Physics. And I created a quick demo. And by quick, I mean like six hours of figuring out how all the stuff works. Uh, just putting some boxes in the scene and then um, turning off gravity because I don't actually want gravity to be a part of this equation. but having physics based on those boxes where I can pick them up, move them around, use one box to move another box, kind of shoving things around, stacking items, things like that. And then the next day I started attaching text to things because that's you know one of the main points of this and everything broke. And I started finding, I started searching for answers and found other people having similar issues. Initially, I thought something was wrong with super hands, but it, it turned out to be the physics system when you are using the default physics system on a comp or the default physics component on an entity, it will, it has this auto collider creation based on the shape of the mesh that it's attached to. So when I just give it a, a, a box and say, add physics to this, it creates a collider in the same shape of the static mesh for the box. But when I added the text element on, which is a, a different WebGL object, basically anchored onto the box, the physics engine didn't know what to do with that and didn't successfully create the collider. Um, and the workaround that I found of that was basically disable the auto creation of colliders and just manually create it. Um, kind of similar to anyone who's worked in Unity or Unreal Engine, you can you can have your physics system automatically create colliders for your mesh, or you can just, you know, create kind of boxy colliders around your things or hall create colliders, things like that. So that's essentially what I did is just passed in the 
you know, the size and shape of a, you know, make a box collider these dimensions or make a sphere collider with this radius or a cylinder collider with this number of segments and this height and things like that. So it was a pretty good workaround, but it took me, you know, most of the weekend to figure this stuff out. And uh, yeah, it's working now. The most interesting thing from the physics system is a component called sleepy, which is, <laughs> I, I wish this existed in real life, but basically imagine you have a, a scene with gravity set to earth normal and you add physics to a box and then you pick it up and drop it. It will drop to the ground. Now do that with sleepy and it basically does the initial physics calculations and then they all just taper off prematurely. And so you can kind of like throw stuff, but it won't go very far. It like, it won't go a realistic distance when it's sleepy. And then you combine that with turning off gravity. And I end up with this kind of, I don't know, it's kind of hard to describe, but it's kind of rubber band physics where I can throw something in front of me as hard as I possibly can. It's only going to go like two inches and just stop there. <laughs> and this gives so me it's, it's physics in a world where the atmosphere is jello. Yeah, it's basically the physics system just gives up and goes to sleep after a couple of frames. <laughs> and it's got this interesting side effect where I can't intentionally or I can't unintentionally place anything out of my reach. So I can stand in one spot, not even worry about locomotion in these scenes. Everything that I can reach, I can always reach. I can't accidentally throw something too far away. Um, oh, neat. Yeah, it's pretty neat. So yeah, it's been a fun little project. I've got a kind of a little sandbox project that I've been working on some of these ideas with. And then the actual chambers project. I have three instances of that. I've got the Nuxt.js and Babylon.js project that I had started. And I started to work on an entity component system because Babylon.js does not have and into the component system built in. And I made some progress on that before running into those Babylon.js problems. And then I have an A-frame project with Nuxt.js that I was working on some of this with. And I have a an express server backend that communicates with my FileMaker database to pull data in. And that express server backend would also be the thing that I plug into other data sources like the Microsoft Graph and any other services I want to plug into it. And I was working on that over the weekend and I just kind of kept running into not issues, but annoyances where working in Vue and Nuxt with the A-frame stuff was more, it was slowing me down. And it was just, I just kept running into things about how view is interpreting the A-frame code and I didn't really want to spend any time troubleshooting it. So for the time being, I just went back to a regular, you know, static project, no NPM builds or anything. It's just a make a folder, make some PHP files, make some HTML files and some JavaScript files and just serve that on my dev server. And the, the downside of that is it has, a good and bad. I can't use the standalone express server as the data source for that unless I start importing some front end stuff to be able to do uh, 
API calls without using the native fetch API in the browser. The, the fetch API can only do stuff on different origins if you disable the, the course thing, but then it can only do simple requests, text only requests, not you know, structured JSON or anything like that. So I decided to just rebuild my API endpoints in PHP, which took about 20 minutes. Um, and I think I'm just gonna keep that for the time being. So I guess you could say I've like relapsed into PHP, but uh, I don't know. It's the express server is really neat, but I PHP stuff is just so dead simple. And I can do things there much faster than I can where the express server stuff, especially with all the asynchronous stuff is always like, okay, I want to do the simple thing. Now I need to learn how to do all of this other stuff to do that simple thing where the PHP equivalent, I already know how to do all of that. Mm -hmm. And for the purpose of the UI project, the backend doesn't matter. Like I'm, I'm not producing this backend for anybody else to mm -hmm. consume. Um, the, the resources that I intend to create out of this project um, is user interface elements in A-Frame. So basically a, an A-Frame library full of components that you can use that will be completely abstracted from any kind of backend. You can drop that into any project, whether it's a node project or not, um, any other type of project. So yeah, I'm kind of giving up on the you know, the full stack of JavaScript stuff for now and just sticking to what I'm used to just get things up and running and focusing on that front end stuff. So yeah, that's my kind of scattered update for that. Um, the only other thing I have to talk about today is the M1 Mac mini that I got. Ooh. We talked about it at the end of the last episode that I had ordered one and I got it. I set it up. And most importantly, I got rid of the cursed Mac. <laughs> <laughs> like it's gone. I sent it away to California. It went to live on a farm upstate. You know, I didn't ask for its forwarding address. I, del I deleted it on Facebook. I blocked its tweets on Twitter. Like we're no longer talking. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the new M1 Mac is fine. It is, I mean, I got the, the cheapest one and it was the first Mac that I've had since I started my business that falls below the amount at which I start amortizing equipment for multiple years. So it was just an expense. Um, I think I, I've heard a lot of people talk about these on podcasts and everybody is just raving about how incredibly fast these machines are. It's fine. I think some of that is overblown. I mean, granted, I was coming from a, like a fully spec'd up high-end MacBook Pro to an entry-level Mac, you know, less than a quarter of the price. But to me, the performance is about the same. So in that sense, yes, it's pretty mm -hmm. fast for an entry-level device. But day-to-day, -day, nothing really seems that faster. Like everything, there's a couple programs that launch faster, mostly Apple stuff. But I don't know. I think it's fine. It's, it's not blowing me away. It's not disappointing me. Um, it does everything that a Mac does and it does a pretty good job at that. But I don't, I think some of the like 
some of the enthusiasm about this is a bit overblown. Like if you were to take some of these people at face value, you would think you're getting like an incredible supercomputer. And so it's like, no, it's, it's a computer. It, <laughs> it's just like all the other Macs, only a little bit faster in some ways. And, you know, a little bit of compromises in some other areas, but it's totally fine. Um, the only major downside for me was that uh, some of the podcast stuff isn't ready for it yet. So I'm recording on my Windows PC, which is not why we're not, which is, <laughs> it's not my fault that we're having audio issues today, surprisingly. Um, I, I, I don't know that that's actually been established. I don't know. My I, system's blaming. sending. Yeah. <laughs> I'm blaming Dave because I couldn't hear Dave. Yes. But, I'm, uh, I'm not in a position at this point to tell you you're wrong. I'm just not also in a position to tell you you are definitely right. Yeah. We know it's not, we know it's something to do with Skype because when we switched from Skype to Zoom, the issue went away. Yeah. But who knows what, where it's happening. But, um, Generally speaking, the M1 Mac is fine. And I kind of like this, like I'm keeping my Windows machine as my mobile computer, which, you know, it's been a while since I've had to go to a client site, but I do need a computer for that kind of stuff. So I'm just gonna keep the Windows machine as the laptop or portable and just keep the Mac in the office. And tentatively the plan is just to, every time they rev the Mac mini, I'll just buy the new one you know, every year or two. And I think next time I will probably keep the current one that I have and add a third one on the stack. And then after <laughs> that, I'll start replacing them. Just a nice little rotation going. Yeah. Yeah. I I think at least some of the, the enthusiasm about the M1, I think is at least partially based, you know, a lot of these people in the blogosphere and such have been using Macs for a long time. So they've been through a transition mm -hmm. and Apple usually has some kind of technology to help bridge the transition. And those technologies have generally worked pretty well and relatively performantly, but you could always tell the difference between software that was running under the old architecture and, and that was running under the new architecture. There was a dramatic speed difference. And there were substantive stability differences. And the fact that your machine is, for the most part, it's just a Mac, mm -hmm. is itself an amazing achievement. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's all very cool how it all works. But from an end user, like I've, I've got a client that has maybe 40 Macs. If I were to replace half of their MacBook Pros with new MacBook Pros, they would not be able to tell the difference, yeah. which is a good thing. But there is no like groundbreaking... Like, yes, this thing on paper may have higher benchmarks under these single performance things, but none of the stuff that we use matters. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I can't tell if VS Code is opening, you know, 10 milliseconds faster because I can't mm -hmm. perceive that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's the only major software incompatibility I saw, which I don't think has anything to do with ARM, but probably just Big Sur in general was the, the Firefox developer edition browser was crashing for the first couple of weeks and they've they released an update that fixed that. And it was only crashing when I opened the developer console while there was an error in the console as the last line. So it was like this very specific <laughs> thing. 
So if there was a warning there, then it was fine. But and if you had the console open and then it started showing errors, it was fine. But it was just like opening it while an error is the last item in the console, it would crash the whole browser. Yay, edge cases. Yeah, weird stuff. But yeah, that's pretty much it in terms of software issues. Big Sur is fine. Visually, it's fine. <laughs> um, I think if I was working on a laptop, it would bother me a lot more because it kind of eats up some space in the menu bar and stuff like that. But on a bigger monitor, it doesn't really bother me. But yeah, I'm yeah. interested for the, you know, I'm more interested in the version two of these machines and, you know, what other form factors they kind of make if they make a touchscreen Mac or, you know, if they're, like it would please me to no end if their AR headset was Mac based instead of iOS based, but I know that's not going to happen. I don't, I don't think that's likely. Yeah. Their pattern so far says that they'll do another splinter OS. Yeah. I mean, that's what watch OS is derivative from iOS. TVOS is derivative from iOS. iPad OS yeah. is iOS essentially with some different UI stuff. So yeah. So uh, on a personal note, um, I wanted to make myself accountable to some, to somebody besides me, but I've been complaining for years about RSI issues in my hands. And over the last year, my left hand has pretty much completely healed. And whatever I was doing to aggravate that has, I've stopped doing that. But my right hand has gotten worse and worse and worse. And I'm not using input devices with it. I'm not really using a mouse or a trackpad with it. I'm really just typing. And there are still days where I'm just in a excruciating amount of pain. So I have on my to-do list tomorrow to actually start whatever process I need to do to find a doctor or a physical therapist or a surgeon or a drug dealer to make this problem go away. Um, but I have also had that on my list for months and I keep deferring it. So I thought I would mention it publicly so that if I don't do it by next show that Dave can publicly shame me for not doing what I said I was gonna do. Yeah, that totally seems in line with my character. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's about all I have for today. Anything else from you, Dave? Uh, not at this point. Cool. Well, we'll be back next week, hopefully with a more stable recording setup. Thanks for listening.